For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue our study through this New Testament letter. One of the things I like to point out when we're studying through a book like Ephesians is the fact that the book of Ephesians was not written to us. It was written for our sake, but it was not written to us. It was written to a particular people in a particular place. And in this case, that particular people in particular place was a church in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus in the New Testament is this real interesting city that just keeps popping up from time to time. In fact, there are really these three key places we see Ephesus in the New Testament. The first is, of course, the book of Ephesians that we're reading and that we've been studying this, this winter and this spring. Uh, the second place you'll see the book of Ephesus pop up, and some of you will know this, is in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, there, there's a letter, these letters that are written to seven churches. And the first among them is the church in the city of Ephesus. And they're told, among many other things, things that they had lost their first love, and that is a letter written to the church in the city of Ephesus. So we have the book of Ephesians, we have Revelation chapter 2, but then what's really interesting about the city of Ephesus and the church that we find in Ephesus is we actually get to see the beginning of this church. We get to see how this church was planted and formed. We see that story primarily in Acts chapter 19. And if you have time between now and the time you go to bed tonight, I would encourage you to go read Acts chapter 19 and be encouraged and blessed by what you find in there. But in Acts chapter 19, Paul and some disciples of Jesus show up in the city and they begin to talk to people about Jesus. And I won't have you turn there as much as I just want to read this over you. Acts 19 verses 9 and 10 says this. Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannaeus. So here's what happens. Paul goes into a city and there's these disciples of Jesus with him. 
And what are they doing on a daily basis over and over and over again? Every time they wake up in the morning, it's that they're having discussions with people about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. They're sharing about Jesus. They're having discussions back and forth, asking and answering questions about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. It goes on this way in the next verse. It says, this went on for two years so that all of the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So the great church planting strategy in Ephesus, the great idea they had is we're going to go into the city and for two years on a daily basis, we're going to talk to people about Jesus. There wasn't a big strategy. There wasn't a big event. There wasn't a big program. It's not like they got together at a conference and said, this is how you go plant a church. The church that began in Ephesus began with Paul and other Christians talking every single day with people about Jesus over the course of two years. And then what's the result of this? By the end of that two years, everyone who lived in that area, Jews and Greeks, so everyone had heard the word of the Lord. This was their great strategy. This was their great plan. Their tactic was go into the city and begin to talk about Jesus. And here's what happens. Again, I, I wish many of you would go read this whole chapter later today, but here's the, um, here's the result of what happens here in verse 17. It, it says, the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of those scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and in great power. So again, the strategy was we're going to go into the city of Ephesus for two years on a daily basis. We're going to have discussions with people about Jesus. People hear about Jesus. It says people start to accept Jesus into their life and submit to him as the Lord of their lives. And then what begins to happen? What begins to happen is people begin to repent and turn from how they did things before. So it says here that there are certain people who brought scrolls that they were using to practice sorcery and it started burning them publicly to the tune of 50,000 drachmas, which you can think millions and millions of dollars. In other words, they come in and for two years on a daily basis, they're talking about Jesus, discussing about Jesus. And over the course of those two years, everyone has heard about Jesus and the entire economy and culture and essence of that city is turned upside down. And I think when we get to Ephesians chapter three today, what we're going to read this passage that you just heard spoken over you and that we're going to study this morning, I think this is what Paul has in mind. I think Paul is remembering how the church in that city began because this morning as we look at this book and as we try to ask some questions about what life means, I want us to think about this question, this question that must have been top of mind for Paul. And it's this one. What does God use to lead people to saving faith? Like in other words, how does God rescue people? How does God save people? How does God grow his church? How does God bring sinful human beings like you and like me into his family? And you might think the answer to that question is through a talented pastor or through a great program that a church has or through a great worship package that we do here at church. You might think it's through an emotional moment or a great argument or a solid book. And all of those things have their place. But what we just saw in Acts chapter 19 is that the answer to the question, who does God use to lead people to faith in Jesus? Who does God use to grow his church? Is actually far more simple than that. I want to suggest to you this morning that the people God uses to grow his church are people who have the courage to talk about Jesus. Remember Paul's strategy when he comes into Ephesus, the strategy was simple. They're going to go into the city 
And for two years, every single solitary day, they're going to have discussions with people about Jesus to the point where no one in Ephesus after two years had not heard the name of Jesus. And through that, through that courage to talk openly about Jesus, God saves people, he grows his church, and he turns a city upside down. This is worth us considering this morning as we turn to Ephesians 3, and it's worth us considering this morning as we think about our role and our church and our community here in our time. So here's one of the things I dream about. One of the things I dream about Calvary Community Church is that the Conejo Valley would be the type of place where you could not live here for very long without someone telling you about Jesus. I dream that this is the kind of church and that we are the kind of people who are having these daily discussions with people about Jesus, that we're talking about Jesus and sharing about Jesus and the name of Jesus is being talked about and the grace and the mercy of Christ is being extended so that no one gets to live here long without hearing about Jesus. Because if we want to ask the question, how does God save people? How does God grow his church? How does God move in a powerful way in our city, in our valley, in our context, and in our time? The answer is that we, the people of God here in this room, listening online, our church here needs to be a people who have the courage to talk about Jesus. I want to show that to you in the text this morning. I want us to think deeply about what it means for us to have the courage to talk openly and boldly and courageously about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll show you this here in chapter 3, verse 1. It begins this way. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, oftentimes I'll point out a word in the text, and this part, I actually want to point out a punctuation mark here in the text. You'll see it says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash here. Now, their Bibles are going to have different translations. In this particular one, there's a dash, and here's why. Paul starts to set up an argument, and then what happens here in verse 1 is he gives the argument, and he is going to pick up what he is about to say in verse 14. Starts in verse 1, picks it up in 14. Commentators call this the great digression. Like in other words, Paul has a thought, and then he drops into some other thoughts, and then he gets back to his thought, which makes every preacher in the world say, you know what, if you're frustrated, Paul did it first. But this is what happens here. And by the Spirit of God, Paul is going to drop into this argument, this presentation of his role in sharing the gospel. But before we get there, And we'll pick up on that argument next week as we get into verse 14. And Pastor Sean continues our teaching series here. But we'll see this, that for this reason, I, Paul, and then I want you to see what Paul calls himself. This is important for us this morning. Paul calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, something I want to remind you of is that Paul is writing this letter. This letter is one of the letters in the New Testament that we call the prison epistles. The prison epistles are letters written by Paul while he is in house arrest, while he is imprisoned. And so Paul is imprisoned, and he is imprisoned by the Roman government for sharing the gospel. He is under house arrest, and he is writing this book of Ephesians. But it is an interesting observation to stop and notice that Paul does not call himself the prisoner of Rome. He does not call himself the prisoner of Caesar. He calls himself the prisoner of Christ. Like In other words, what Paul understands is that he may be a prisoner of the Roman government, and Caesar may be the one who has the authority over that. But what Paul understands is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So whatever happens in his life happens under the sovereign hand of his God. See, for Paul, he understands deeply that what he is in his life, his entire life is made up by being a prisoner, a slave, a bondservant to Christ Jesus. And he understands that whatever Jesus wants of his life, that's what he's doing. 
So for Paul, it's not an insult or a pejorative to call him a prisoner of Christ. In fact, it's something he wears as a badge of honor, something he takes pride in, something he says, this is who I am, and I am not ashamed of being a prisoner of Christ, a slave of Christ, because here's something Paul understands so deeply and something I want us to get to, that the only way to be free is to be a prisoner of Christ. This is the paradox of the Christian faith. That the only way to freedom in this world, to freedom of the things of this world, is actually to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And now again, I know, just for some of us, this just bristles against us. And you know why it bristles against us? Same reason it bristles against me. Because I don't like being told what to do. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want the government to tell me what to do. I don't want my mom to tell me what to do. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, okay? I don't like being told what to do. I want to do my own thing, my own way. I don't want to live my own life. And yet here's what Paul so intuitively understands, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant what Paul understands. See, Paul understands that if you actually want to live in freedom in this world, the only way to be free is to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because underneath this belief is a different belief that Paul has, and this is something taught all throughout the scriptures, and it's this one, is that we are all prisoners of something. We are all prisoners of something. That we are all enslaved to something, governed by something, something or someone calls the shots in our life. We are all prisoners of something. And Paul wants us to understand that to be prisoners of something is a bondage, it is a trap, it is a snare in our life. I'll give you a few examples. So for some people, maybe even people listening this morning, you are a prisoner to popular opinion. And so you've built your whole life over making sure you're never out of step with culture. And so whatever people say is right and wrong and good and bad and fashionable and unfashionable and healthy or not healthy, you just kind of flow along with whatever United States culture says and whatever the year is. And it is shifting sand. And I don't know if you figured this out yet, but if you try to keep up with culture and you try to always align your beliefs with whatever's next, next, it's just exhausting because it's shifting sand. And the Christian who says, I'm going to follow Jesus, but also try to fit in with modern 21st century American culture will be frustrated because hear me, child of God, you never will. You never will. You'll never fit in perfectly. And the person who says, I want to follow Jesus, but also fit in perfectly with this culture around us, it is a prison. It is a snare. It is a trap because we are all prisoners of something. And when you try to fit in with everyone around you, it becomes a cage that you're put in. Listen, we're all prisoners of something. Maybe it's popular opinion. Maybe for you, it's approval. Maybe it's not generally popular culture you want to fit into, but it's the approval of some people, your parents, your colleagues, your neighbors, someone whose opinion you value deeply. And so you so badly want their approval that you change how you act and think and dress and how you approach life so you can fit in with that group. Many of you know I did high school ministry here at this church for many, many years. Uh, And I used to believe that this approval trap was something teenagers struggled with. And then we as adults moved out of that. And then I learned that we as adults just become more sophisticated in how we talk about it. That's what we do. This approval thing never goes away. And you can live to try to earn the approval of others, but it is a snare. It is a trap. It will bind you forever. If you try to live for the approval and the accolades of everyone else in this world, it will bind you. Listen, some people are snared to popular opinion, approval. Here's another one that's raging in our day, political power. I'm sure you've met someone like this, and perhaps you've been someone like this. You know the people who their whole life is politics, that's all they think about, it's all they talk about, it's all they dream about. It's like they get up in the morning and check all of the political news sites just to find out who they're supposed to be angry at today. You know those folks? 
and they're just constantly mad, and then they're asking you, have you heard about this random thing that happened with this random senator in this random place? And you're like, no, I haven't. They're like, oh, I'm going to tell you. You're like, I know you are, right? And this person, their whole life is built around politics. It's the only way they think about the world. And whenever something touches into that world, whether it's sports or church or anything, it's all they think about and all they talk about. And I want to say this, that politics can be a good, right thing in its place, but it can be a trap. It can be a snare. It can be a prison. If the only way you see the world is through the lens of political power. Listen, for some of you, it's approval. For some of you, it's popular opinion. For some of you, it's political power. For some of you, it's far more simple. It's physical appearance. That the desire to be fit or the desire to be healthy or the desire to be skinny or to dress a certain way or present a certain way or look a certain way could just be so all-encompassing in your life. It can become a prison, a snare, and a trap. It can box you in and control and govern your life. And what Paul understands again is that we are all prisoners of something. We can be prisoners of physical appearance and how we look. We can be prisoners of wealth and possessions. The amount of stuff we have, the amount of money we have. It's the person who says, I'll be happy when I have just a little bit more. A little bit more income, a little bit of a nicer house, a little bit of a nicer car, a little bit of a better vacation. That is a prison. It is a trap that you never find your way out of. And then finally, there are some people, perhaps some of us here, who are prisoners to our lust and our impulses. So whatever your body says, whatever you feel, you end up giving into. So when you want to be angry, you're angry. And when you want to be lustful, you act upon that lust. And when you want something deep inside, you always say yes to yourself and you never deny your flesh. And hear me, never denying your flesh sounds like freedom, but it is actually prison. When you never say no to yourself. So here's what Paul understands. Paul understands we're all prisoners of something. And the way to figure out what or who you are a prisoner to is this, that you are a slave to whatever you will not say no to. Whatever you always say yes to, whatever you will not deny, if you never deny your flesh, you're a prisoner to your flesh. If you never deny the popular opinions of this world and stand against them, you are a prisoner to those popular opinions. If you never turn down the opportunity to get more money, more wealth, more possessions, you are a prisoner to those things. And here's what Paul understands in calling himself a prisoner of Christ in other places, a slave of Christ Jesus. He understands this, that the gospel invites people who are trapped, trapped in the constant cycle of these things to find freedom in Christ Jesus. Listen, this is why we want to share the faith. This is why we want to tell people about Jesus. Our goal is not to just get more people to come here on Sunday mornings to be part of some religious organization that we like. Our goal is not to just get to more people to agree with us about Jesus. We actually believe that there's a world of people out there who are trapped in the things of this world that will never satisfy and that the only freedom for them is found in a relationship with Christ Jesus. There's a desire and there's a drive behind us talking about our faith and the desire and the drive isn't just to prove people wrong or to get more people to come to our church. It's that human beings who are trapped in the impulses and the, 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 the snares of this world would come to find freedom in Christ Jesus. It goes on this way in verse two. It says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. Now I love this phrase that Paul uses here. There's an administration of God's grace. Like in other words, God has given him grace and forgiveness. God has gifted Paul. God has equipped Paul. And then what does Paul say happens? This grace that was given to me, it was to me and it was for you. And I think this is the right way for us to think about what it means for us to care about the people around us in our community, to share Jesus with them, 
to be a people and to be a church who share Jesus boldly, confidently, consistently to be a witness to our community. Susie, I think this scripture helps give us a good paradigm because I think it helps define the scope of what each of us as individuals and families and churches are responsible for. I'll put it this way to you this morning, that you are not responsible. You are not responsible for what God has not given you. You are not responsible for what God has not given you. Now, what do I mean by that? Every time I talk about evangelism and I talk about sharing your faith, invariably someone will come up and talk to me and say, Brian, I would love to be an evangelist. I'd love to share my faith. I'd love to be confident in boldly sharing Jesus. I could just never get up on the stage and share a sermon like you or Pastor Sean do. And you want to know the good news for you? You don't have to. You don't. It's not your job. In fact, if you have not been called and equipped and gifted into that kind of role, you're not responsible for it. Why? You are not responsible for what God hasn't given you. So you could say, listen, I don't think I could ever stand up on a stage and present the gospel. Great, you're not responsible for that. Or or I'll have people tell me, you know, I love to share the gospel, but I just don't feel like I could really answer everyone's questions. I couldn't win a debate or an argument. People might ask me questions and I might not know the answer to that. I don't think I could win an argument. And here's the great news. You don't have to. Unless God has equipped you and gifted you and called you to be an apologist who stands up and debates and argues with people, That's not your call. It's not your gift. Again, you are not responsible for what God has not given you. Or people tell me sometimes, I'd love to do evangelism. I could just never walk up to someone on the street. And here's what I believe. I believe God has gifted and equipped and called certain people to do that. And you might not like that style, but I think some people, even in our church, have been gifted to walk up to someone on the promenade or in the Oaks Mall and just share Jesus with them and strike up a conversation and lead someone to Jesus. That's not my gift. That's not my call, and that might not be your call. And if it's not, I need to remind you, you're not responsible for what God hasn't given to you. So again, when it comes to evangelism, I think the problem sometimes is we get so overwhelmed by the task. Like I have to share the gospel with everyone, and I have to preach, and I have to argue with people, and I have to walk up to them on the street. And I want to just release you that if God has not gifted and equipped you and called you in a certain way, you're not responsible for it. And yet, the flip side is true too. That if we're not responsible for what God has not given us, here's what's true. You are responsible for what God has given you. Again, Paul says there's this administration of grace that has been given to me for you. And so what we want to understand is that I'm not responsible for what God hasn't gifted and equipped and called me to do, but I am responsible for what God has given me. So the question for all of us to ask this morning, all of us should be asking this question frequently when it comes to evangelism is this one. What has God given to you? What has God given to you? Because if he hasn't given you the the calling and the equipping to preach or to debate or to walk up to people on the street or whatever thing you feel like you could never do, my question is, what has the God of the universe given to you? Because he's given it to you for the sake of others. Let me give you a few ways to think about this. Number one, if you've been given a family, talk to them about Jesus, a family. And for some of you, that just means your family of origin your parents and your grandparents and your aunts and your uncles. And I want to encourage you, if he's given you a family that you have a great relationship with, talk to them about Jesus. Now, I don't mean like an aggressive, kind of like every family gathering, you're like, no one leaves the dinner table until four baptisms happen. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about just like weaving in Jesus into the conversation. Like one of the things I've had to like own in my own life is how easy it is for me to talk like a Christian at church, but then talk like an atheist at family reunions. 
But like to talk like Jesus stuff here and then to get to family reunions and to not even bring Jesus up in the conversation. How easy it is just to not even go there. So rather than doing that, what do we do at family reunions? We just talk about Jesus like he actually exists because he does. And so we say things like, I've just been trusting the Lord with this and God's been really great here and I'm trying to learn how to follow Jesus here. And we're just sharing just freely about the name of Jesus. We share with our family about Jesus. And then hear me, if you have kids or grandkids, I want you to know that the primary responsibility of who is to share Jesus with your kids or grandkids is you. It's you. Like we are so grateful for the children and student ministries we have here at this church. But those should always serve as a supplement to a parent or grandparent who says, God has given these kids to me and I'm going to share the gospel with them. Like I got two kids and one on the way, and I know that the primary weight of sharing Jesus, the good news of the gospel, and what it means to be a child of God is on me and my wife, to my two daughters and my son. So what do we want to do? If God's given us a family, we want to talk to them about Jesus. Because I'm not responsible for what God hasn't given me, but I am responsible for what he has. Maybe I'll put it this way. If you've been given a platform, use it to proclaim God's grace. God has gifted some of you with the ability and the opportunity for people to listen to you. For, for whatever reason, on media or social media, whether the business you're in, the role you have, the job you work, people listen to what you have to say. And I understand that in certain contexts, it's appropriate or not appropriate to weave God into that conversation. But where it is, can I encourage you to use whatever influence you have in this world to proclaim God's grace? Again, if you have a followers of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, I just want to urge you to say, God gave it to me for the sake of others, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of of the gospel. If you've been given a platform of any kind, can I remind you to just constantly be thinking, how can I use this platform where people will listen to what I have to say for the sake of God's grace to a world that is in desperate need? Listen, if you've been given a platform, use it for God's grace. If you've been given colleagues, use, it, um, use that to invite them to church with you. Colleagues, these people we just rub shoulders with every day, the people who are in our path, the people who we constantly see over and over and over again. Uh, again, one of the things that can be overwhelming is when I say something like, I dream of a day where no one lives in the Caneo Valley without someone telling them about Jesus. And then you go, there's hundreds of thousands of people here. How's that going to work? And then you feel overwhelmed. Like, how could I possibly get to hundreds of thousands of people? You don't have to. You don't have to get to hundreds of thousands of people. You do. You are responsible for the people God puts in your path every single week and every single day. If you have colleagues... Consider inviting them to church, telling them about Jesus. Say, hey, we get to hang out five days a week. Well, let's make it a bonus sixth day. Come to church with me. 11 a.m. service. I'll buy you lunch after, right? Like you bring them in. You start to bring them into the fold. Why? You are not responsible for everyone, but you are responsible for who God has put in your path. I should feel a weight and a responsibility of, hey, these people are in my life and they're in my life for a reason. God has placed me in here to be his ambassador, his witness to his good news. I'll say it this way, if you have a home, if you've been getting a home, whether it's a small little apartment that you're just starting out in or a palatial estate that you live on, welcome people into your home and share the love of Christ. If you've got a table, fill it with food and people and tell them about Jesus. Pray before the meal. Ask them how they're doing. Dig into their lives. Minister to your neighbors. Let people into your home. I, I know over the course of the pandemic, this got so hard to do at times. At times it was like, do not bring people into your home. But as we emerge, as we start to step forward to the level that you're comfortable and your neighbors and friends are comfortable, bring them in. Have those meals. Use your table as a place of ministry. God gave it to you, not for your sake, but for the sake of the people in this world that you can love. If you've been given a talent, leverage that talent for the sake of the gospel. 
Whether that's talent is art or music or poetry or fixing cars or building businesses. And you have that ability to do something in this world. Figure out how do I use what God has given me for the sake of the gospel. Again, I'm not responsible for everything and everyone in this world. But I am responsible for what God has given to me. And then finally, if you've been given time, invest it in the next generation. Some of you, time is a premium right now. You have no time. You're busy. Just even the thought of breathing stresses you out, okay? But for others of you, you have been given a season where there's a little bit more bandwidth. And I want to encourage you in that season to think, how can I use my time, my resources, my abilities to invest in the next generation? Because hundreds of years from now, I may not be here. I will not be here. We will not be here. No one in this room is going to be here hundreds of years from now. But Lord willing, the gospel goes forth in the next generation into our children and our children's children and their children after that. What do we want to do? We want to invest our time. Why? God's given it to us for the sake of the world. We are not responsible for everything in this world. You are not responsible for reaching and telling every person in our community, in our state, in our nation, our world about Jesus. But you are responsible for who God has given you. And so I want us to constantly ask this question, what has God given to me? And how can I use that for the sake of the gospel? It goes on this way in verse three. It says, this is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse six, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, if you are here last week, we talked about the Jews and the Gentiles, Israel and the rest of the world, and that through Jesus Christ, there was a new family of God that was formed, that we were formed into one family, brought together Jews and Gentiles, Israel and all the rest of the world into one family of God, a family not defined by your bloodline or your father's bloodline or his father's bloodline, but by the blood of Jesus where we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our big brother and God is our father. There's a new family of God that's been formed. That's what he's saying here. Heirs together, members of the family together, shares in the promise of Christ Jesus. But how does all of this happen? How does this new family of God that all of us are welcomed into by the forgiveness of Christ happen? It happens, it says explicitly, through the gospel. It happens through the gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news of Jesus, and we talk about sharing the gospel, evangelizing and telling people about the gospel, um, I get concerned from time to time because the gospel can kind of become like the junk drawer you have in your kitchen, right? Here's what you have in your kitchen, and I've never been to many of your houses, but I know you have a drawer somewhere. And it's filled with thumbtacks and rubber bands and receipts from 2011 that you do not need anymore. And you have that drawer and it just fills up and things just end up in there endlessly. And then you look through the drawer and wonder why in the world you own all this stuff. But but that's what the junk drawer is there for. Everything just kind of gets tossed into it. And sometimes this word gospel can become kind of a Christian junk drawer. And so it's just kind of like the gospel is any good thing we like about God or the Bible is the gospel. But I want to be clear. The gospel is not this broad category that includes everything that could possibly be said about God. The gospel is a very specific announcement about who God is and what God has accomplished. So I want to show it to you this way. In verse 7, we see this word gospel and the Greek word behind that. Every time you see gospel in the New Testament is euangelion. 
Euangelion is actually a combination of two Greek words, you and angelion. You is that prefix that we use, even when we say a eulogy. That is a good word spoken about the deceased at a funeral. The you and then the angelion. Angelion is actually where we get our English word angel from. Angel means messenger or one who brings a message or communicates the message so that gospel literally means good tidings or good message or good news. This word euangelion is actually where we get evangelism from. So when we say we're doing the work of evangelism, it's that we're sharing this euangelion, this gospel. It's also where we get the word evangelical from, which has become a political or sociological category. And that's heartbreaking to me because this word is not sociological or political. It is a word that means the good news of Jesus. It is the good tidings of the gospel. See, again, the gospel can become this junk drawer word where it means all these things. But I want us to be clear. The gospel is the good news of something. And I want to show you what that something is. See, all over the New Testament, it's going to be defined by Jesus and by Paul and by Peter and by John and all of the authors in the New Testament. But I think the most clear place we see it is 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to show you what Paul says about this gospel, this euangelion. He says, now brothers and sisters, which again is what we are in the family of God. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. I want to remind you of this euangelion. Next slide. He says again, by this gospel, this euangelion, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Next slide. Here he's going to define it. He says, for what I received to you, I passed on a first importance. You want to know this most important thing we can say about the gospel? It's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You want to know what the gospel is? The gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead so we could be saved, period. Full stop. That's the gospel. The gospel is the invitation for sinners to trust in Jesus, to know him, to have our sins forgiven, that we might be raised with Christ into this new humanity and new creation that God is making. That Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. Uh, like in other words, it's important that we get our head around what the gospel is and not layer a bunch of things on top of it. Let me say it this way this morning. The gospel is not a command to be obeyed. The gospel is not a list of rules that you have to obey or a bunch of things you have to achieve in order for God to love you, accept you, and forgive you. No, the gospel is not a command to be obeyed. The gospel is an announcement to be received. It is an announcement of good news of good tidings. It would be like if you were a Rams fan and somehow inexplicably you slept through the entire Super Bowl last weekend. And I rushed into your room and went, hey, they won, right? You would go, wow, that's not a command to be obeyed. That is an announcement to be received with joy. That's what the gospel is. It is an announcement to a dying world that they can be rescued and saved through Jesus. It is an announcement to great sinners that they have a greater savior in the Christ, the son of the living God. And here is the announcement for anyone in this room or listening online right now that needs to hear this. The good news, the announcement of God is that God knew your sinfulness. He knew your brokenness. He sees all of the ways he's you fallen short and he wants you anyway. So badly that he would be willing to send his son into this world, that he would redeem you, call you his own, and forgive you of your sin and give you a home forevermore with him. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel. It is not a command to be obeyed, 
but an announcement that we receive with joy and we share with gladness. It goes on this way in verse seven. It says, I became a servant of this gospel, this euangelion, by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone this administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So Paul announces what his mission is. He announces what he's called to do. Again, he's the least of all apostles, like God saved a sinner like him. And then he says, I have this job and that's to tell people about Jesus. And then in verse nine, we'll go back one slide here. In verse nine, he says, my job is to tell people about Jesus, right? To preach to the Gentiles and to make it plain to everyone, the administration of this mystery. Well, like in other words, here's what Paul understands. When he is telling people about Jesus, his task, his assignment begins with making things plain, making things clear. That's what he wants to do as he is sharing the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And the same thing is true with us. If we are going to talk to people about Jesus and share our faith and boldly proclaim and witness to the Caneo Valley, I need us to understand this, that the first task of evangelism is to make the message clear. That's our first task, to have a clear message. Whether you feel equipped and gifted, like I can do this, or you can't do this, whether you've done it many times before, or you've never really shared your faith, the first task is that we would make the message clear. And in order to make the message clear, we've got to make sure we don't muddy it with all the things that we're tempted to muddy it with. We've got to make sure we don't muddy it with all the things that we think we need to layer on in order to convince someone. So, so let me put it a few ways to you. If the goal is to make the message clear, can I just persuade you and convince you this morning, don't muddy the message with morality. Don't muddy the message with morality. But like I need you to know that if I come to Christ and I trust him as Lord and Savior, it's gonna change the moral direction and fiber of my life. But that is not a requirement in order to come to Jesus. And one of the worst things we can do in evangelism is try to convince someone to first clean up their life and then call on the name of the Lord. But I need to remind you, the Bible doesn't say those who clean up their life and then call on the name of the Lord are saved. It says those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. So what do we want to do? We want to lead people to the great physician and allow him to heal them rather than insisting they get well first before they come to the doctor. That's what we want to do. So we don't want to muddy the message with morality. We don't want to insist that someone has to come to perfect living and everything's right in their life. Then they can come to God. No, it's the opposite. We want to clearly proclaim the God who forgives and not muddy the message with morality. Number two, we don't want to muddy the message with politics. We don't want to muddy it with politics. Again, I just believe you come to Jesus, you trust the Lord, you believe what the scriptures say about the world. It's going to change how you view government and justice and righteousness and all of the different things of this world. But let's just be real clear. For someone to come to Jesus, they don't have to come to your political party first. They don't have to come to all your persuasions on politics in order to come to Jesus. And if someone's going to come to Jesus, we want them to come to Jesus out of any party in any place in any platform. And if we have got to the place where someone has to come to our political party before they can come to our savior, we have lost the plot and we have lost the point. Don't muddy the message with politics. Don't let politics become the governing part of your evangelism. Next, don't muddy the message with complex theology. Now hear me on this. I love complex theology. I love reading like some old big thick book with a pencil and I'm writing through it. Like I love that. And so I'm not like downplaying that. I'm just saying when I'm sharing the gospel with someone who knows nothing about Jesus, I don't have to get into my fascination with the Melchizedek priesthood for them to come to Christ. 
It's not what I need to do. I don't need to get into like deep conversations about free will and God's sovereign choice and how that fits together. And oh, Calvin said this, but like I don't have to get into all that, right? Like it's not that that doesn't matter. It's just that that's not the call. And we don't want to muddy the message with this kind of complex stuff that they can't understand, that they won't get their mind around because they need to come to Jesus first. Next is similar, but a little different. It's don't muddy the message with secondary issues. So listen, I have all sorts of convictions on what I would call secondary issues. Issues that you don't need to believe to be saved, but I'm convinced of. Things about Genesis or the age of the earth or about baptism and how it should be done or or about the timeline of the return of Christ. I have beliefs and convictions on all of that. But here's what I need us to know. You do not need to believe what the Bible says about the age of the earth in order to come to Jesus. You don't need to believe all the things in the Bible in order to come to Jesus. That may surprise you. But here's what it is. Someone comes to Jesus. I'm convinced that they don't come to Jesus because they believe the whole Bible. They believe that the Bible is trustworthy because they've come to Christ. And so our job is not to convince them on all these secondary issues first before they can come to faith in Jesus. We want to simply present the good news of the gospel and not expect someone to agree with everything the Bible could possibly say before they come to faith and trust in Jesus. So here's what I want for someone. I want them to come to faith and trust in Jesus and through Jesus' confidence in the scriptures, I want their confidence to grow. So what do I want to do? I don't want to bog someone down like these secondary issues. And if someone you're talking to about faith starts to get into like Genesis 1 and 2 or the book of Judges says this or what do you do with this verse in Romans? Listen, you don't have to argue about every little thing. The main thing is to do what? It's to keep the main thing the main thing, to focus on Jesus. And then finally, don't muddy the message with academic jargon. Don't don't try to sound fancy. Don't try to complicate the message. Don't try to share the gospel in some way that sounds new or revolutionary or different. This has always been the temptation for Christians to try to share some different sounding gospel so they don't sound like those Christians in ages past. Like you're so desperate not to sound like some old-fashioned fundamentalist Christian that you don't just want to share the old, old story that Jesus Christ died for sinners like us. And that's what we're called to do. Not to come up with some new, fancy, complicated, convoluted message, but to tell what the hymn calls the old, old story. Some of you will remember this hymn. The lyrics I'll put right up here. It says, I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We're not called to tell something fancy or different or complicated or convoluted. You and I, when we talk to our friends, neighbors, families, and colleagues about Jesus, are called to tell the old, old story of what? Of Jesus and his love. Get the message clear. Get it straight. Be extraordinarily clear on what the message is and tell that old, old story of Jesus and his love. Verse 12 tells us this, that in him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. One of the things that should define the Christian is said right here in, in this, uh-oh, did we skip? I skipped. I skipped it. I'm so sorry. I skipped it. Verse, verse 10. We're going to go back and make sure we read that. Verse 10. It says, His intent now is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known through the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Verse 11. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is a remarkable passage that actually talks about the fact that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, like the angels, are actually looking down at what's happening here, 11 o'clock service, Calvary Community Church, and they're like, that is so cool. That's so strange to me because I want to be impressed with what's going on in heaven. And up in heaven, they're like, whoa. And why are they going, whoa? Because God's plan of redemption is happening right here in this space. Like what God's plan from the very beginning is, is unfolding here in this space, in this church service, in this moment. And the angels are just peering in going, wow. 
And then in verse 12, it says this. It says, in him and through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So, so in other words, when I look to God, one of the defining things about my relationship with him should be freedom and confidence. Freedom. What is freedom from? Freedom from the fear of punishment. Freedom from the law. Freedom from needing to earn or measure up or prove my ability to be in fellowship with God. And confidence. Confidence that he loves me. That he's for me. That he's with me. That he's redeemed me and called me his own. That I am his. Confidence that my sins are actually fully and finally forgiven. Those should be the defining marks of our worship before God. And as the defining marks of our worship before God, it impacts how we share Jesus with others. Look, let me put this in two ways to you this morning. Number one, freedom with God creates freedom from the fear of people. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament, the fear of man. And it says it's a snare. This fear we have of other people's opinions and what they're going to say and what they're going to do to us and how they're going to talk or react to us when we say something. And what the Bible does is if I have freedom with God, I can have freedom from the opinions of others, from the assessments of others. See, I'm going to talk about Jesus on my social media, and someone's going to belittle me or berate me or mock me for that. But you know why I'm okay with that? Because that person isn't my judge. I know my judge. He sits on the throne of heaven, and it isn't that person, right? The the confidence we have, the ability, the freedom from the, the, the fear of other people comes from the fact that we know who our judge is, and he sits in heaven, and he's not in front of me. So if a colleague or a coworker or a family member mocks you or belittles you or rejects you or gives you a hard time for your faith, the freedom you have from them isn't that you don't care about them. You do. It's that you know who your judge is. And can I remind you, child of God, your judge sits in heaven and he has already declared over you, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus who you are found in. That's what we believe. That's what we trust in. So I know who my judge is, and it's not the person in front of me. And so if they mock me or reject me or belittle me, I can handle that because I know who my judge is. And then along with freedom comes confidence. And here's what confidence does. Confidence with God creates confidence in evangelism. Do you know that the reason you were saved isn't because you wanted to be saved? The decisive actor in your salvation wasn't you? Let me say that again. The decisive actor in your salvation was not you. The decisive actor in your salvation was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God saved you, not you. You didn't save you. The Holy Spirit did it. And because the Holy Spirit saved me, God saved me, I can have confidence with God, right? He picked me. He saved me. It was his deal, right? And so because it's the Holy Spirit who saved me, what does that give me? It gives me confidence when I share the gospel with other people. Why? Because now I know it's not my presentation that saves. It's the Holy Spirit, And for some, you don't want to do evangelism. You don't want to share your faith because you don't think you're winsome or powerful or articulate enough to do that. And I want to free you this morning that you don't have to be. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who saves. And in case I need to remind you again this morning, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of your bones. And so every time you speak, the Holy Spirit of God is working through you. And so you might not feel like the most powerful or articulate person who could share the gospel in any kind of way. And I need you to know your confidence doesn't come from you. Your confidence comes from God, who says, I saved you, I rescued you, and I'll do the same when you open your mouth and speak about Jesus. Paul says that we have freedom and we have confidence when we come before God, and that frees us up and gives us confidence to talk to others. And then in verse 13, we'll close with this verse. It says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. And I love this here. Paul's going to talk about his sufferings. 
Apollo's been beaten and shipwrecked and thrown in prison and things have not gone very well since he came to have trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He's suffering and things are difficult in his life and yet he understands something deeply. He says, I don't want you to be discouraged. Like in other words, stop praying away my suffering. He goes, my suffering is actually for your glory. So here's what Paul understands. Paul understands that suffering, discomfort, the pain and the ache of life, these hard things that he's gone through, has actually served to advance the cause of the gospel for God's glory and the good of the church. Here's what he understands. His suffering, his pain, his discomfort, the hard things he's gone through has actually led to glory. And here's what all of us understand. Like even if you're not a Christian, you understand what this means. Like you understand what it means to go through hard things and it ultimately leads to glory. If you've ever been through grad school, law school, med school, you knew that that was a hard time. It was incredibly difficult. And yet on the other side was something beautiful. Like if you've ever built a business or done something wonderful in that space, you know that there was this incredibly hard thing you went through, but it led to something beautiful and glorious. You know that you've ever competed at a high level athletically. You go through this incredibly intense training and nutrition and this protocol. And on the other side of it is this glorious thing. See, this is what Paul understands. Paul understands that suffering is not something to be avoided in life. It's not something we run from. In fact, if we want to see growth in our life, it's something we must embrace as part of life and part of our existence. John Ortberg says it this way. I love how he says it. He says, the decision to grow always involves a choice between risk and comfort. This means that to be a follower of Jesus, you must renounce comfort as the ultimate value in your life. I love this phrase. That if we want to grow, we got a choice between risk and comfort. And if I want to be a follower of Jesus, I need to renounce comfort as the ultimate value in my life. I think the Apostle Paul did that. He renounced comfort as the ultimate value in his life. For Paul, being comfortable, things being easy, things being not so difficult on his life was not the ultimate value. God's glory was his ultimate value. So he was willing to push through suffering, willing to push through discomfort. And I believe that has to be the same for us. We must renounce comfort as the ultimate aim in our life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying intentionally just make yourself uncomfortable. Not asking anyone to throw out your pillows and get like rocks from your garden and be like, I'm discomfort. You know, it's not it. What I'm saying is, If we want to be faithful to Jesus in this world, and if we want to be a people who share and talk about Jesus, we got to learn to be okay with discomfort, with the awkwardness, with the weirdness of sometimes we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to bring up Jesus, and people are going to look at us sideways, or they're going to make fun of us, or they're going to be like, how do you in 2022 still believe in God, you silly backwards person? They're going to mock you and belittle you and look down on you. They're going to say weird things about you. Or maybe they'll say nothing at all and it'll just be that painful moment of silence where you're not even sure what to do. But if we are going to be the type of people who talk to people about Jesus, and if we want to be the type of Conejo Valley where people can't live here long without hearing about Jesus, we must renounce comfort as our highest aim, our highest value. We must be a people who say, I'm willing to go through suffering. I'm willing to go through discomfort. I'm willing to go through it all so that people can hear about Jesus. Because here's what I need us to close on this morning. It's the two things are going to happen. Two things are going to happen when we have the risk, when we have the courage, when we take the risk to speak about Jesus. Number one, God's going to grow our faith. Like I need you to know when you share your faith, when you do evangelism, it's not just that the church grows or other people grow, you grow. Because when you step into the discomfort and say, I'm willing to talk to this person about Jesus, even though it might not go particularly well, your faith grows. God grows your faith. And then what's the other thing that happened? God grows his family because people get saved. Because people come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
How and why? Back to Acts 19 where we began this sermon because people on a daily basis over the course of two years talked about Jesus over and over and over again. God grows our faith and God grows his family. Let's think about it this way. Um, uh, this week, uh, we've been thinking a ton about God growing families. Uh, some of you'll notice, others you don't. Uh, my wife and I, uh, well, my wife is pregnant and I, uh, with our third child. Um, and uh, that child we're expecting this week, like this is the week where that baby is, is on her way. Uh, and so we're pretty excited about that, yeah. Uh, and so... We've been thinking a lot about this uh, because as I look back over the last uh, nine, 10 months, um, using the word discomfort to describe how my wife has felt is probably an understatement, right? Uh, It's been uncomfortable and it's been painful at times and and it's been physically just really, really difficult on her. And and then as we look forward into this next week and delivery, um, to say discomfort is an understatement is an understatement, right? Discomfort won't even begin to describe what she's going to experience this week and all the mamas said amen, right? Like like there's there's pain, there's suffering, there's discomfort. And then even past that, like, here's what we all know, like new baby in the home, Howard family isn't sleeping for a while, right? Like things are going to be turned upside down, our schedule's thrown off, everything's different. The next time I preach, probably won't have slept for like six weeks. We'll see how it goes, okay? But, but here's what's going to happen. There's pain and discomfort before. There's pain in the delivery. There's pain and discomfort after. Everything's thrown into confusion. And yet never even for a moment have I thought to myself, what a burden this new baby girl is. Never thought that. Why? Because she is not a burden. She is a blessing. She is a blessing to our world and a blessing to our family. And through all of the discomfort and the pain and the confusion, through all of the things that are going to happen and have happened, through all of this mess, there is this beauty of our family growing. And here's what I want you to know is true about evangelism. It's the same thing. When we take the risk to talk about Jesus, I want you to know it might be messy. If anyone ever convinces you that evangelism is this easy three-step process, and if you just say these three things, no one will ever say no, run away from that person. Don't buy their book, okay? But because evangelism's messy. We talk to people about Jesus, and it's awkward and painful and uncomfortable. Sometimes we're misunderstood. Sometimes we misunderstand them. Sometimes it just doesn't go well at all, and it's this messy process. But through that messy process, God grows you, and God grows your family. And every single time someone comes to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and joins our church or any Bible-preaching church in this world, we rejoice, not because that person is a burden. They are not. Every time God grows his family, it is a blessing. And it is a blessing to us to see God grow his family. So Calvary, can we dream of a day? Can we work toward, can we labor toward, can we be a church that dreams of a day where no one lives in the Caneo Valley for long without hearing the name of Jesus Christ? That's what we dream of. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to because when we do it, God grows our faith, and God will grow his family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks once again for the opportunity to look at your word, to consider it deeply. Thanks for the book of Ephesians, and thanks for that. It just continues to challenge me as I think about what it means to fulfill the calling you've given me and all of us in this world in this time. God, I just pray you would fill us with courage. Help us to talk about Jesus. Help us to speak his name. Help us to bring him up in conversation, and help us to not be afraid of the opinions and the thoughts and the rejections of others. God, I pray for boldness. I pray for wisdom. I pray for courage. I pray we would be a church that talks about Jesus. And I pray we would be a valley where no one lives here long without hearing about your son. God, if it's not true today, would it be true in our time, in our lifetime, in our season? God, would you do a great thing in and through our church unless you fill us with courage? We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.